0: Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. I would like to welcome you
1: all to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester worth of tuition costs, you can audit a course at a much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Today's event is a part of IWP's student speaker series, and our student is Corey Ott. Originally from New Jersey, Corey Ott attended Stevenson University in Maryland to earn his Bachelor's of Science in Psychology in May of 2018. His undergraduate thesis focused on morality, views on authority, and guilt experienced with whistleblowing. Mr. Ott is currently studying statecraft and national security affairs at the Institute of World Politics with a focus on intelligence. His lecture is based on a paper he submitted for IUP's course on international relations and statecraft. Please join me in welcoming
0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, as you just heard, my name is Corey Ott, um, we're just going to jump right in. You've heard some of this from the introduction that I was just given, but originally I'm from New Jersey, so if you start to hear my accent come out, that is why. Um, I did graduate in May with my bachelor's of Science in Psychology from Stevenson University, which is in Owings Mills, Maryland. Currently, I work for the Office of Inspector General of USPS, where we do research on customer segmentation, um, and I typically help out with the data or setting up interviews, things of that nature. And then lastly, I'm attending the Institute of World Politics. I'm actually finishing my second semester here in two weeks, we have our finals. Uh, this was a picture of the first day back in August during our orientation. You can actually see me right there with my eyes closed because the sun was a little bright that day, but we made it through it. Um, but yeah, we're just gonna jump right into the overview. So today we're going to be talking about the history of the border, how did the border become what it is today. Um, we're also going to talk about military relations, so all the different wars, how did Canada and America work with each other, um, you know, through the different conflicts that we've had. Then public values, so as we know, America's is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and then Canada is peace, order, and um, good government. Media, basically, where is the media in each country? So which way does it lean? Who has the most view count per day? You know, How does that affect uh, diplomacy? The government structure of each nation, because while they have similarities, Canada and America are very different set up just from their origins. Resource management, and then lastly, trade, and also how that affects public perception between the two leaders of each country. So starting out with the history of the border, We're going to have the Treaty of Paris. So I chose this as the origin point because this is where we officially start to see the formation of different borders and countries claiming different territories. Just as a side note, between the 1500s and all the way until the mid 1600s, there was a huge uh, immigration flow from France, which is why we have a very big um, influence of French culture within uh, cities such as Quebec. Um, but then in the 1650s, that immigration flow tapered off, but the UK and Scotland continued to produce high immigration numbers, uh, to which we see the British claims and the Spanish claims in the South. So then we have the Rush-Bago Treaty. So let me just catch up with my notes here. So the rush Treaty demilitarized the War of 1812. This is where we see a land structure used as a barrier between two of the countries. So they officially set the Great Lakes as Canada is in the north, or the Canadian Territory, Canadian Confederacy, or Federacy, sorry. And then south is the American claims. Um, During this time, no one actually said who has what claims over the water. It was literally just the lands were separated, and then the water is basically what's separating those two. Then we have the London Convention or the Treaty of 1818, which is where we get that very long stretch of border on the 49th parallel, uh, and then the Webster—oops, sorry—the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. So we shoot back to the east again, and this is because the surveying that took place that led to the Maine, Vermont, and New York border was actually very poor back in the 1800s. So during the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. They went back to solidify what that border actually was, what are the definitive lines, and this actually led to something called Fort Blunder. So America was making fortification on the very northern tip of the New York State, and it turns out that after they figured out this treaty, the fort was a mile inside of the Canadian territory. Um, they ended up having to abandon the fortification and basically scrounging for the materials to bring it back onto the American side of the border, so I thought that was pretty interesting That. We ended up having to give up an entire fortification because we messed up serving. Then we have the Oregon Treaty of 1846. So, America during this time as well was experiencing manifest destiny, which was we are constantly trying to push to the west. And the Canadian territory was like, that's totally fine, you can keep moving west, but do not move north. So, we see the Canadian border form at the same rate that the American border is kind of forming as well. just continues all the way over to the Pacific Ocean with Oregon Treaty. And then we have the Alaskan Boundary Dispute of 1903, so that is all the islands on the southern part of Alaska. And the reason why these are important is because that's a lot of fish grounds and also many ports are in there. Um, ultimately, America ended up taking that land, but that is part of the, um, what is now Alaska State. And then we have the Treaty of 1908. So this went back to the Great Lakes and said who has what claims over which side of the water. You can see the dotted line in this map um, shows where the border actually continues through that water territory. And then lastly, the International Boundary Commission, which was developed in 1925. Each country has its own commissioner, so America has one, Canada has one. And the major stipulation is that the border has to be kept brush-free and, you know, the grass cut and everything, 25 feet in each direction to make a definitive border. So this is actually a picture of what it looks like. It goes up mountains, like this pathway, um, and in the middle of the 25 feet is where the border actually lays. Um, Now, this is a picture of that very long straight piece of border that we saw, but within that long straight border, there's also, like, these cutouts that happen um, just for... uh, there's like certain claims that had to be developed within a negotiation, so it's not exactly perfectly straight, but, you know, it evolved as it come move less. So this is a map of Europe, which is not Canada, but I wanted to show what the Canadian border, the Northern American border, looked like if it was overlaid Europe. So typically when you look at a globe, you're only going to see North America on one side, or if you look at a map, they're on opposite sides. So I thought it would be kind of interesting just to see. So the the north U.S. border goes from Algeria all the way to the Caspian Sea and Iran, and then the Alaskan border, including the islands, goes from Spain all the way to above the United Kingdom. Um, And
2: this just kind of shows the... So that means Europe is Canada and Africa is U.S.?
0: Yes, yeah, essentially that's
2: what we're going for here. It's just to kind of show the scale
0: of what we're dealing with, just the, I believe it's is well more than, if as the crow flies, it's about 4,000 miles, but if you were to put it all together, I think it's around 6,000 miles in total. So it's just a huge border to kind of take care of. So next we're also going to talk about military relations. So starting with the War of 1812, uh, most of, in terms of the conflict between Canada and America, most of the conflicts took place on the Great Lakes. Uh, there was a lot of naval battles, um, but the Treaty of Ghent in 1814 is what uh, settled down that conflict, and then we had the what was it? The Let me just it. There, well, there was the Rush-Bagot Treaty that demilitarized the war. So that was what it officially, it made it so each country could have one vessel on the water, but uh, the Treaty of Ghent is what officially made everybody stop shooting. Then the Civil War of 1860 is one of the complicated conflicts because it's not one that, the Civil War wasn't against Canada, but at the same time Canada did provide 50,000 troops, or at least 50,000 Canadians enlisted in the American military, most of which were for the Union, both because the Canadians did not support slavery and also just geographic convenience, it was a lot easier for Canadians to enlist in the Union than it was in the Confederacy. That being said, there was uh, Confederacy support in Canada, however when uh, Washington, D.C. discovered this. They threatened London and the UK with war, with absolute war, um, saying that if you're going to support our enemy, then we're, that uh, basically the UK was scared that America was going to take over Canada and just sweep through. So Canada backed away from the Confederacy and continued to support the Union. And we have World War One, where an example where Canada and America worked together was the Number 2 Construction Battalion of 1917. Um, it was the only mostly black battalion in World War I on the Allied side, and it mostly helped the fortifications and trench development in France. Uh, this is an example of an advertisement that was in the newspaper at the time, just trying to recruit men for this battalion. Um, then we have World War II. Okay, so we have World War II. Uh, Canada was the only country in the Americas to enter the war before Pearl Harbor, and that's mostly due to its ties with the U.K., and when Pearl Harbor hit, that's when um, everything changed. Uh, so 1.1 million Canadians served in World War II, and 16 million Americans, uh, American troops served, so about 10% of each nation uh, had their troops go across, and then notable battles that were shared between Canada and America were the Battle of the Bulge and Normandy landings and Operation Overlord a very significant battle within World War II. So this advertisement was actually found by Duke University by American Airlines. And it was originally from the 19, I believe 1940. Um, But it quotes, the bottom paragraph says, as we use the indivisible air, effectively we shrink the space that separates us and erase the barriers of language, customs and understanding. Nothing is more symptomatic of our changing world than the closer union of these great nations. What is now a wartime necessity will grow and ripen to a rich, hemispherical solidarity." So this was an advertisement, but at the same time, it kind of captures the essence of what was happening at this time, where, yes, this was war and there's a lot of conflict, but even American Airlines recognized that this was gonna bring these two countries closer together just through uh, their shared air space. Uh, We also have the Ogensenberg Agreement in 1940, which was, America and Canada agreed to protect each other in the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean, and this was because uh, Germany was showing very high aggression in Europe, and they were scared that if Germany took over all of Europe, their next target would be to come across the ocean and start attacking the Americans. So they preemptively made this agreement to watch over each other. There's no expiration date on this, so it's actually still going on today. So America and Canada are still holding true to that uh, agreement, if you will. Then we have the Korean War. Uh, In the 1950s, Canada sent 26,000 troops Uh, and America sent 5.7 million troops with uh, 36,000 deaths shared between Canada and America. Uh, This picture is the 187th Airborne Regimental Combat Team, which is conducting a practice exercise. I just wanted to kind of show uh, a little bit of context, I guess, um, with what would be seen over in Korea during this war. So during the Vietnam War, uh, we had 30,000 Canadians. enlisted in the U.S. Army, and uh, 2.7 million U.S. Shol- uh, soldiers were sent, with 58,000 being killed between America and Canada. Uh, tens of thousands of Americans also emigrated to Canada to avoid the draft. Just wanted to put a side note in there, Canada did have an effect in terms of draft numbers as well. Um, and this is a picture of one of the protests that was happening, I believe outside, it looks like, the Canadian Embassy. but um, That was because Canada, again, was used as a refuge for people who were trying to avoid the drought. Then we have the Cold War, and this is where we really start to see Canadian and American relations amplify dramatically. Um, uh, So we have NORAD here, which is the North American Aerospace Defense Command, which is an agreement, an air agreement between Canada and America, which was established in 1951. Uh, It's still active today. And it was an early defense system in terms of a nuclear attack that came from the north. So we can see three different lines, the Dew Line, the Mid-Canada Line, and the Pine Tree Line. Um, And this gave an early warning system. So an interesting note that I found while researching this too was when they were first calibrating sensors, the Dew Line sensor uh, picked up the moon and thought it was a nuclear weapon coming across the horizon, which set off a whole bunch of alarms through Canada and America, and it almost started World War III. Um, the good news was that the moon is only one thing, and they figured that since if if Russia was to attack with full-blown force, they wouldn't just send one nuclear weapon. So they ended up uh, waiting it out and see what would happen, and end up just being the moon coming over the horizon. And then that brings us to today, which gives us NATO, um, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, with Canada and America being one of the uh, founding members. I believe there was nine in total. There's 27 other countries in NATO. Um, it was founded in 1949, and the newest member is Montenegro, as of June 5th, 2017. So, even, even in modern times, it's still growing. So, we're going to talk a little bit about public values now. As I mentioned before, America has life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And these three values came out because, <coughs> during the origins of America, they really wanted to declare their independence. They were trying to come out of a monarchy a kingdom, um, they, life and liberty was paramount above everything else, and then the pursuit of happiness, at the time happiness meant wealth, so it meant you're, you're, you're free to pursue wealth in however you can, as long as it doesn't uh, obstruct another people's rights. And then we have Canada's peace, order, and good government. So Canada created this uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and I believe it was 1867 when they became uh, an independent confederacy, I want to say I'm using the right word. But peace and order came from, in 1967 was just five years after the American Civil War. So that war is still very fresh in the Canadian mind, just south of their border. Um, So that became a very prominent value that they wanted to share inside uh, their constitution. And then good government, there were a set of rebellions back in the 1830s over government corruption that was taking place. Uh, So they wanted to really hone in on good government, meaning utilitarianistic values for the greater good. Do not think of yourself when you're working in government. Um, Just, you know, make sure that you're trying to help the people rather than just yourself. Um, And then that also brings us to media and global perspective. So what I wanted to do here was compare the top watched news stations of each country and just see how that kind of affects um, how they view the world. So America, the most watched uh, news station is Fox News with 2.24 million views per day. Um, as compared to MSNBC, which has 1.69 million views, and CNN, which has 1.12 million views. And these are uh, early 2018 numbers, I believe, so they haven't changed too much since then. Uh, And then uh, Canada's most-watched news station is CTV, which gets 1.2 million views per day. Um, And CTV, so we hear that Fox typically leans right. CTV leans left in the same way Fox leans right. So... While it seems like CTV only gets about half the view count of Fox News, you also have to remember the population size of each country. So Canada has about 30 million people, while America has 300 million people. So Fox News does get more quantity-wise, but they're only getting about less than a percent of the population, while CTV is getting around 3%. Um, and I think that's, that is a significant amount compared to me. So next we have government structure. Uh, America is a constitutional republic that has three branches, the executive, legislative, and judicial. They're separate on purpose because they don't want to give any specific branch more power than the other. Uh, And that's where the checks and balances come in. And again, we come back to the origins of we're trying to get away from monarchy, we don't want to have uh, dictatorship or anything like that. So checks and balances were huge when trying to figure out the system of government the U.S. was going to use while Canada has a slightly different approach. Again, they have the three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial, uh, but they're a parliamentary democracy with less checks and balances. So, the executive branch holds the prime minister and the uh, cabinet, as well as the governor general. So the governor general is the queen's representation in the uh, Canadian government. Um, and She is, uh, sorry, Julie Payette, that is the current Governor uh, General, and then Justin Trudeau is the Prime Minister. Um, So they have less checks and balances because of that third public value of good government. They're trying to make it so that government is inherently not corrupt, or at least they're trying to make it so uh, basically checks and balances is not on the top of the priority list as it was for America. So we can see there is overlap. The Prime Minister, I believe, can appoint the House of Commons, Commons members. Um, so they also give a lot more power to the Prime Minister as well. Um, currently, there is a, 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 this just came out about a month ago, a corruption scandal in the Canadian government where it's alleged that the Prime Minister was using his power to effect a judicial court decision. Um, so while this system does not inherently prevent corruption, it does make it so it's both easier to spot and then the watchdogs are in place to kind of squander any kind of corruption that's going on. So then we have resources. How do the resources get shared between America and Canada? They have this massive border shared between the two. That means they're gonna have to find a way to get along to share these resources. So back in 1971, the Columbian River Treaty was created. Um, Basically, Canada wanted more hydroelectric power and America wanted more water. And this is where this kind of came out. We're going to zoom in a little bit here, so all the red triangles and the gold stars are dams that were created by America for hydroelectric power, they have the resources to make them. Um, and then you can see the river starts in Canada, so they have first rights as to where that water actually goes. So the agreement specifically says uh, Canada gets half of America's hydroelectric power in this agreement, but Canada is supposed to share 19 square kilometers of this reservoir space. So, the best of both worlds. Canada gets the power that it wants, and um, America gets the water that it needs. And then, now we're going to talk about trade. So, there are basically three uh, major trade agreements that have happened over history uh, between America and Canada, at least big free trade agreements. The first one being with Ronald Reagan and uh, Brian Mulroney, who was the Canadian Prime Minister at the time. This was the Canadian-United States Free Trade Agreement, and it was made in 1987. This was the first big official agreement. I was kind of shocked to hear that the first trade agreement happened in the 80s, That's kind of late, but it turns out Canada did not get its full sovereignty until 1982 with the Canadian Act, or Canada Act. Um, so the objectives of this treaty was to eliminate the barriers of trades and goods and services between the two countries, facilitate conditions of fair competition, significantly expand liberalization of conditions of cross-border investment, um, establish effective procedures, and lay down the fa- foundation of future agreements. So basically, they knew this was this was not going to be the last treaty, and this wasn't trying to fix every problem in one shot, but it was trying to create the blueprint or the skeleton of what future trade could be, uh, essentially open the doors. Next, we have the North American Free Trade Agreement, which we've been hearing on the news a lot lately because it's about to be replaced, or is pretty much replaced at this point. Um, This was made in 1994 with uh, President Bill Clinton, Prime Minister Jean Cretin, and President Carlos Salinas de Gortari. Uh, So those are the three signers. The biggest difference with this one is it includes Mexico with the trade agreement. Um, It opened more pathways between trade uh, between Canada and Mexico uh, using railroad pipeline and fiber optics. So this is also during the huge internet surge uh, that was happening. They saw this and actually included it into the trade agreement, too. So they wanted to make sure to be at least on the curve in terms of uh, future development. Um, It also created the North American Agreement on Environmental Cooperation. Um, And this was, each country had to develop their own academically peer-reviewed article on how trade will affect the environment. So this is also during the giant green push of the 90s, so they recognized that as well. Um, and trade affects the environment, both through just the resources, the raw resources that are shared between the countries, but also the transportation and how to get them across the border. Um, and then finally, we have the most current one, which is the uh, United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. Uh, it was just recently signed on November 30th of 2018 uh, by President Enrique Nieto, who's on the left, President Donald Trump in the middle, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the right. Uh, This had five major points, and this is directly from the treaty. It granted the U.S. tariff-free access to about 4% of the Canadian dairy market. Uh, Mexico is required to pass legislation that improves bargaining capabilities of labor unions. Copyright length in Canada extends the life plus 70 years. Minimum wage must be raised to $16 per hour for automobile factories. And then lastly, members of this trade agreement must also notify the other members of outside trade agreements. So everybody wanted to be on the same page moving forward, because trade with other countries can affect trade with these. So they wanted to have it open. And then lastly, uh, they set a sunset clause, which basically means every six years they have to revisit this, no matter what. Even if it's working out really well, they have to revisit it and see if there's anything that they have to change which actually shows um, a high amount of confidence, meaning that they're willing to revisit this, not just when it needs to be revisited, but for the next 16 years, every six years, they're going to be revisiting this treaty to make sure uh, everything's working out and if any adjustments need to be made. So America's trade equals to about 11.89 of its GDP, or $2.3 trillion, and then Canada's trade equals 66% of its GDP. 1.1 1.1 trillion dollars, um, and this is similar to the media we we're talking about. Where while America's trade, technically quantitative wise, it is bigger, Canada has a higher percentage of students relying on this trade. So the trade agreements that are happening between these two countries is huge. I just wanted to show real quick for America, the biggest exporter trading partner is mostly Canada, as you can see with the blue states. Um, but then when we move to importer, sorry for the blurry image, but uh, China kind of takes over in terms of importing. Uh, but Canada still has North Central and Northwest. So, relations in the future, how does this actually affect what's going on moving forward? Um, so we've been in militarily good grounds since the 1840s. Civil so War was kind of awkward, but we made it through. Um, and then we've also had free trade agreements, but only for the past couple decades. However, with those sunset clauses, it's showing a lot of promise. It's showing that we're willing to revisit and see not only how, uh, what's going wrong, but what can they improve on, what's going right. Uh, and then finally, diplomatic relations. So something I wanted to point out to during the most recent trade talks that were happening, there was also the tariff war that was going on. We kept hearing about, I believe it was the summer of 2018 into uh, the end of the year. Uh, and this was essentially, uh, there was a 25% tax on steel, or a 25% tariff on steel and a 10% tariff on aluminum that originally uh, President Trump announced in June of 2018. And then Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, said retaliatory tariffs that were the same thing but going the opposite way, that amounted to $16.6 billion in tariffs. I just wanted to point out that, so the circles are the same exact time. The top is President Trump, the bottom is Justin Trudeau. They had almost an exact inverse uh, effect that happened when they announced these tariffs. So Trump's, President Trump's, approval rating went up when he announced the tariffs, while Justin Trudeau's numbers went down around this time. Uh, people thought that it wasn't strong enough, or it just wasn't enough to come up with retaliatory tariffs, um, but as you can see, it kind of, they both returned to normal levels. But it was kind of interesting to see how, like, the, the uh, words that are said in public heavily affect how those uh, leaders are seen in the public eye. So, this concludes this part of the presentation for me. We went over military relations, how the border came to be, uh, their media, public values, and government structure. Um, what the future holds seems to be pretty positive. Uh, again, with that sunset clause, it seems like people are going to be revisiting, or at least the the diplomats are going to be revisiting this when needed. Um, but if you have any questions, my email is on the slide as well as my LinkedIn, and I'll take questions now too. Thank you very much.
1: Do you have any insight, uh, talking about military relations, do you have any insight into
0: how, or if the U.S. and Canada partner in terms of intelligence? And if so, do you have ideas about how those uh, intelligence agencies
1: operate in each country? Well, mostly I'm interested in how Canada's might be a little different from the U.S. Right, All right.
0: Um, Look. So, in terms of intelligence, that's a tricky question. I actually couldn't find anything directly from passed. That's mostly because I believe the intelligence that came, and I'm, I'm taking an estimated guess here, I believe the intelligence came okay, since they were still uh, closely tied with them until the 1980s when the Canada Act came out. Um, currently, to be honest, I don't know, but I could definitely look into that and uh, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. Okay. Any other questions?
2: Yes. Um, can I give you some questions/ suggestions probably you yeah, will, sir. Sir, might continue your work mm-hmm. and maybe it will be helpful the first one about the title yeah it's American Canada mm-hmm. which suggests that Canada does not belong to America okay right yeah yeah so just when you're kind of putting uh, against each other so, I means Canada and America American Canada Canada does not belong to America it's not true. Okay. Canada doesn't belong to America, so that's why, um, especially you're talking about statecraft. so mm-hmm. it's better to use official title for United States of America, I the, the US, US that versus Canada, that. Yeah. right, the first. Uh, second, probably the most interesting part, uh, oh, second probably even before that, mm-hmm. um, it's better to just formulate the question that you're going to uh, answer. Your presentation and your study and so on at the very beginning. So exactly what question, a question or several questions that you would like to to get the answers from. So not clear. It's it's a lot of information, but not focused enough. Okay. And the question that I read it was probably not your intention, but I read from the title and explanation mm-hmm. that you are going to discuss differences between. US and Canada in the art of statecraft. Yeah. And this is very interesting. And this is one of the most fascinating topics uh, discussing because both countries, nations or states, whatever you like, mm-hmm. are offsprings of Britain. Yeah. Of Britain government or state institutions. Mm-hmm. To a different extent we understand it, but from so now, far abroad uh, U.S. and Canada can be considered our brothers or twins or very close relatives, right. so that is why. And the question was interesting, why, uh, what is common and what is different? Mm-hmm. So that's that's really the most interesting question. So that is why uh, that question, actually I expected to, uh, that you would discuss this issue, what is common, what is different. Mm-hmm. And you actually made some interesting uh, kind of observation, for example, these Kind of the slogans or aims or whatever for two countries life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness versus peace, order, and good governance. This is a huge topic for research. Mm. Why? Why these two close nations, from roots to some kind of territorial proximity to language to whatever, Mm. just having rather different, at least not the same slogans and how these slogans reflect the differences or some kind of how they influence the difference and that would be very interesting.
0: That is, yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. And because I don't want to occupy too much uh, time, but I, th- I think it's really uh, good. Um, when people look in these two countries, the US and Canada, they would really compare them, not only by the size, not only by population, it's basic, it's understandable, but after that they ask asking well, what is different and why it is different. Mm-hmm. One of the very obvious comparison is GDP per capita, not yeah. absolute GDP, because it's clear it's, and it's not interesting, because it's <laughs> obvious. Yeah. But GDP per capita is interesting uh, in uh, whether it's consistent and whether it's uh, on some evolution. Because for a long period of time, Canada has lower GDP per capita than the United States Mm -hmm. by different amount. The question arises, why? Very similar nations. Uh, With all stuff very similar. Why persistently Canada has lower GDP per capita? If we look at the quality of institutions, and you're talking about statecraft, whatever, rule of law, corruption, whatever just the property rights protections and stuff like that just even a little bit. Canada has higher quality of government public institutions and that creates another big question why first of all why Canada has higher than the United States and why having higher quality of public institutions Canada has low GDP per capita mm-hmm. and there's a really big is. Yeah. yeah, so that's just um, that some kind of um, uh, the traditional question that uh, people raise when they're talking about Canada versus US or US versus Canada. Yeah. And um, I was actually looking forward to see <laughs> I, any, any approaches, any attempts to settle with it.
0: No, I definitely can evolve my
2: research moving forward to trying to tackle And if I would suggest one more element, because it it looks like uh, you were going to skip this part, but I think it's not an explanation, but it could give maybe some Mm insights. You skip the element of um, settlement of two countries. Who settled in the United States, who and how, and what kind of people settled, and who and how settled Canada. And after that huge population transfer from the US to Canada mm-hmm. as a result of the independence or whatever, American Revolution or independence, right. when the at least a quarter of former American population moved to Canada. Mm-hmm. So called royals, Okay? So yeah. just and this is a big issue because people are carrying institutions, habits, traditions with them. Mm-hmm. So that is why uh, some people who could not leave within the United States, moved to Canada. Mm-hmm. And they brought some the traditions with them over there. Yeah. So, uh, and also you missed French part of Canada completely. Mm-hmm. And it's also a very important element because it's a, uh, even you did not put any, any mark uh, no. on, the, uh, on Quebec, but Quebec did influence heavily Canada and Canadian history for a long period of time, including right now. So that just uh, <coughs> it's once again, it's a food for thought. It's not yeah, the uh, ready answer. there is no ready answer. But your concept or your hypothesis or your approaches would be extremely interesting to hear, especially if you have this interest mm-hmm. to this particular questions, which, by the way, um, maybe not some kind of not something that is being uh, widely debated here, but it must be debated. Yeah, And I mean, like you said, it's a very interesting
0: topic. And yeah, I remember, yeah, in, in the beginning of this presentation, I mentioned uh, in the 1500s all the way up to the 1600s, there was a huge immigration flow. Um, that being said, it's hard to say, it, it did have an effect on culture, such as you said Quebec. Um, it's hard to say what specific things it did affect, only because it's such a complicated question. And as I said too, like I can definitely gear my research towards that more, just to see pluck out what actual factors are affecting uh, the culture of each nation, just from those origins that you stated. So yeah, that was a good point, thank you. Are there any other questions? All right, thank you so much for coming to my talk.